welcome to New Covenant Church. You're listening to this week's sermon by Pastor Daryl Finch. Wow, happy Mother's Day. Yeah? Have you noticed there are some children only a mother could love? Right? Yeah, go ahead and look at them. <clears throat> of course, they're other people's children, right? Boy came home from school and he said, Mom, the teacher was asking today if I have any brothers and sisters who will be coming to school. Mom said, Well, that's nice of her to take such interest in you. What did you tell her when you, when, what'd you, what did she say when you told her that you're an only child? She said, Thank goodness. Yeah. How many of you had ever had your mama lick her thumb? Anybody besides me? Have fun, you know, well, it's been scientifically proven that mom's spit is exact chemical composition of Formula 409. <laughs> mom's spit on a Kleenex can take rust off the bumper. Works every time. Happy Mother's Day. We are glad you're here. We wouldn't be here without you. We're in a series called Lost and Found. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be covering over the next few weeks this one chapter in Luke's gospel. And I've been in it for some time now. And the title is Lost and Found, Recovering the Heart of the Father. This morning, I want us to look at what I'm calling reckless love. Probably no one knows reckless love more than mothers. One thing I found out, that mothers don't quit. They keep on keeping on. They tend to love beyond reason or risk. Because reckless is defined by Webster as marked by a lack of proper caution, careless of consequences. We often think of that as in the negative, but that's also in the positive. And what I'm going to be dealing with is God's love for you is reckless in the sense that He's not concerned about His reputation He's concerned about you. God is reckless in that He's not concerned about what other people think. He's not concerned about what somebody else might say. He's recklessly in love with His children. And if you look at Luke chapter 15, this chapter is a parable that contains three stories that Jesus tells to answer the accusation of the Pharisees as to why he's receiving tax collectors and sinners and even eat with, eating with them. It's found in verses 1 and 2. And so Jesus tells of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and this morning we're going to talk about the lost son. The consistency in the stories is something is lost, and there's a search for it until it's found, and then there's rejoicing and joy over its finding. Lost doesn't mean to be misdirected or misplaced. The word lost in the Greek means to be headed for destruction, headed for ruin, or to be perishing. It's the same word used in John 3.16 where God said He's not willing that any should perish. In other words, whoever believes should not perish but come to eternal life. The first two stories had to do with property, with possessions. It was common sense that you would be searching for something that was of value to you. 
Today, I want us to look at what has been called the lost son, the prodigal son. And Jesus takes the story from possessions to the family, to a person, to God's reckless love. But the story starts out with a reckless life. Look at verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. His livelihood. These words would have described an assault on community. The unraveling of the family. These words were a radical rejection of the father and the family and the community. They would have been hurtful, offensive, and reckless. Give me. Give me. Now, this just shows that uh, we're not the first entitlement generation. There's something been in all of the generations about the give me. But for you to understand why this was such a rebellion and why it was such an offense, you have to understand the culture of this time to understand the assault on the family and the, and the father. Because that, during Jesus' day, there was a patriarchal system. The father and the mother was to be honored. And, and they, they were responsible for the family and the property and the legacy or the inheritance. And this young man, this young one, was coming and asking for his portion of the estate now. There's a unique word that's used here. He's not asking for his inheritance. He's asking for his portion of the estate. You see, there's laws of inheritance in the Jewish community. And if you get your inheritance, then you become responsible for the legacy of the family. That's not what the young one was asking for. He wasn't asking for his inheritance or his portion of inheritance. He was asking for his portion of the estate. And here's the thing that you've got to understand. In that day, the older brother, the eldest son, or would get two-thirds of the inheritance. And the younger, the younger ones would get one-third to be divided among themselves. Because the responsibility of the inheritance was the essence of the inheritance. The father was to be honored. The youngest was saying, give me my part now. The very request was saying something to the Father that we don't tend to understand. You see, the estate and the inheritance could not be passed on until the Father died. So what the younger son was basically saying to the Father is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so that I could have my part. Now, that the very words Jesus was saying would have been seen as the height of rebellion, a dishonor to the Father, a shock to the community. This kind, of res- this kind of request would have been the common practice of the Jewish patriarch system would have been a slap across his face to shame him back into submission. He would have been brought out before the community and t- t- dressed down, basically. This kind of request would have been... But unknown, the law called for 
him to be carried before the elders. If you turn back to Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, verse 18. It says this, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they had chastised him, or chastened him, will not heed to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, seize him, and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders of this city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil person from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Discipline was a little bit different in that day. That was the law of how you deal with a rebellious son. This father had that exact same thing being said to him. I wish you were dead. Now, here's what would have happened. They didn't, they, in Jesus' day, they no longer stoned rebellious sons, but they disowned. And in fact, they would have a funeral for that son as if he were dead. And so basically that son, that rebellious son, would be dead to the family, dead to the community, dead to everyone who knew who he was. But look at what this father did. Look at the last part of verse 12. So he divided to them his livelihood. I want you to note the word livelihood. He didn't just divide his estate, he divided his life. That word livelihood is bias, his life. Everything that had been given to him and everything that he had built it to be and everything that he intended it for be was handed over to them. Now the youngest son was asking for the estate and the father, it wasn't illegal for him to divide. He could do with the estate or the inheritance anything he wanted to do at any time he wanted to. But it wouldn't take effect until he died. And so he divided to them his life and everything that he had and who he was. Father gave them their choice. And I'm, this, to me, <laughs> this is reckless. The elder son should have been outraged, but he received his portion too. You see, in that system, the elder son was the one who was to protect the honor of the father. But you don't hear anything out of the elder son right now because the elder son is getting his part too, and his part's bigger. His is two-thirds. The Father gave them their choice and the freedom to walk in it. The recklessness is you don't enable this kind of rebellion. You squash it. This Father divided to them... His life. Look at verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The words gathered all together means he liquidated his part. He turned it into cash. You see, all the younger son was after is show me the money. Show me the money. Give me what's coming to me. Well, if the estate couldn't be transferred until the father's death then gathered all together means he 
liquidated his part. He turned it into cash. He sold his interest. Basically, what he did was he sold the equity of the family's property to someone else in order to get the money. Uh, it would be kind of like a reverse mortgage. What a reverse mortgage for us that's getting old. What a reverse mortgage is, is that uh, you, they will pay you and you can still stay in your house. And they basically buy your house, but you get to live in your house until you die. And when you die, your house becomes theirs. Now, here's the thing about if you're if you're buying something for the future and it's not going to be transferred to you until they die, then let me tell you, you're going to buy it at a discount. It's going to be cents on the dollar of what it's really valued for. This is what the young son does. He takes the father's estate and he sells the future in it in order that he can get he cashes out at a great discount the value of the father's legacy. And he leaves. And here's the thing. He's not just leaving the house. He's not going off to college. He's leaving a drastic cutting loose from the way of thinking and living and being and acting that has been handed down to him by his family, by his father. It's not just disrespect, but it's a betrayal of family values and community. You see, money is more important to him than relationship. I want to make a point here that I think is a principle that Jesus is trying to say. God will give you the freedom to choose your sin and go as far in it as you choose to go. God will give you a freedom to choose your sin. Here's the thing. A lot of us think God wouldn't let me do that. Yeah, He will. Well, God will stop me before. I found out something about God. He'll, he's God enough to let you go because He knows He's God enough to get you back. You can choose your sin. And you can choose how long you'll stay in it. And how far you'll go. You've got to understand. It's, it's Romans 1 where it talks about all these things and God gives them up. Not because he's trying to punish them, but because here's the thing. You can choose to do it. You can choose. Look at verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, you're free to choose your sin. You're free to choose to stay in it as long as you choose. But here's the second principle. You're free to choose your sin, but you're not free to choose the consequences. You're not free to choose your consequences. Here's the thing I want you to see. In this story, Jesus is not minimizing sin. He's actually amplifying it. You can choose your sin, but you're not not free to choose the consequences. He spent it all. There's an end to recklessness. There's a result. There's a consequence. How many of you know if you have money, there's always people to help you spend it? 
Right? You do know money talks. It says bye. He'd spend all in a famine. A severe famine came in that land. And sometimes we try, we preachers try to make this like God is coming after you and He's going to, He causes the famine. Listen, famines happen. Droughts happen. Life happens. The reckless, I don't know that he would have known the famine if he had still had all of his money. He not, might not have known the famine. It might have been a famine for somebody else. But you see, he gets to the place in life when nothing's working. What he planned on ain't happening. What he thought was going to be before him was now behind him. And he went and he joined himself. He began to be in want. Basically, he was without. Famines, droughts, lack happens. He wasted all, comes to want, finds himself feeding pigs, starving... He connects himself with a, he attaches himself with a citizen of the country. In other words, he didn't go looking for a job. He was a beggar. The whole idea of attaching is he's yanking at the clothes of the citizen of the country. In other words, he's following them around asking for a handout. And finally, the citizen doesn't give him a job. He gives him a, a place. Go feed the pigs. You know what that means for a Jew. And he finds himself willing to eat the very slop that the pigs are eating. And then it says this, and no one would give him anything. Now, I don't know if he's talking about the pigs or people. Pigs don't share. Have you noticed that? Can you imagine seeing this young man down in the trough fighting pigs for pigs' food? That's the depth. I want to make this statement. I want you to hear. The idea that I get from this is that if somebody had given him something, he would have stayed there. If somebody would have enabled him, he would have stayed there. The idea... Let me tell you, uh, there's friends in the slop. So let me give you this principle, I think. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray. It'll cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. And it'll keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay. You can choose it. You can go your way. You see, how you get lost, the sheep got lost by following its desires. The son got lost by following his desires. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to do my own thing. I, I don't care about what has been. I want to be what will be. I want to be in part of it. I want to be in charge of it. I want to be in control of my own fire affairs. I want to be one who does his own thing. And he finds himself doing everybody else's thing. Sin, you can choose it. But it'll take you further than you ever thought you wanted to stray. You can choose it. It'll cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd have to pay. And it'll keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay. Verse 17, the son gets a revelation. Verse 17 says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough 
bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. New American Standard says, My father's hired men have more than enough. He gets this revelation. Now, most of the time when I've preached on this, this story is very familiar, and I've preached on this many times before. I thought when he came to himself, it means he has this aha moment. That suddenly he just comes to, to see how, where he's at, what's happened. He's just coming around. The Bible says he came to his senses. And I somehow had the idea that the Holy Spirit just moved and he just turned everything around. That's not what the Scripture says. He came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? And I'm here starving. Listen to what he got. He got a revelation of his father. You see, you've got to understand, hired servants wasn't just an employee. You see, in that system of that day, there were landowners. And landowners usually had servants. But servants, bond slaves and things like that, were more like the family. They were just sharing with the things of the family. Then you had tenants who worked the farm for it. And they got to make the profit, raise their own families and were a part of it. And then you had craftsmen and merchants. And then you had hired servants. Hired servants were day laborers that stayed in the center of the, the city and waited for somebody to hire them. They were the least and the lowest of the employment. The hired servants worked whenever they wanted to or whenever they could find a job or somebody would hire them. And they worked for a single day. And at the end of the day, the law required that they get paid for that day's wage because their life depended on that amount. Now, here's what the son got a revelation of. His hired servants, the father's hired servants, the lowest of the lowest and the least had bread enough and despair. In other words, his father was merciful and generous and good. He got, for the first time perhaps in his life, he had a revelation of the goodness of his own father. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough and I'm here starving? And so, he came to himself and he says, and he, I will arise and go to my father. Here's the other thing. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. You see, most of us think if you get them, if you shame them bad enough, if you back them in the corner, if you make them have a turnaround, you've led them to repentance. No, it's the goodness of God that lets you really see True repentance. So, what happens? Verse 20, it says that he arose and he came to his father. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and again before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Sounds like to me he's making another deal. Is he going back because he's hungry and his father's good? You see, hired workers don't live in the house. They just work for the day and then go back to do as they wish. Is he repenting or is he just counting on his luck? There's another part of this. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He sees himself in comparison to his father. 
And then it says, he arose and came to his father. He acted on his change of thinking. Now folks, listen to me. A lot of times our repentance is this. God, get me out. And I promise you, if you get me out, and I'll never go there, I'll never do that. I'll do... And we make our deals with God. Here's what makes me know this is true repentance in Jesus' story. He arose and went. He acted on... He didn't get repentance perfect. Sometimes we think, well, I've got to straighten everything out. No, it's about returning to the Father. Most of us return to the out. You know what I mean? God, if you'll get me out, I promise you, and as soon as He gets me out, I go back to the very same things that I was always doing. That's not repentance. That's being being gotten out. Repentance is, I have a revelation of who I am and what I'm not, who He is, and I go to Him. I'm not going to go back to my out, out of trouble, into peace. Don't have that trouble anymore. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going back to God. He arose and went back to the Father. And here... It's where we see the reckless love. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. He arose, but when he was a still a great way off, his father saw him. That means the father was looking. Before the son saw the father, listen to this, the father saw the son. Before the son saw the father, the father saw the son. And he had compassion. That word compassion doesn't mean pity. It means to be long moved in the depths of your bowels in longing for another. He had compassion. He loved him. And he ran. And that would have shocked the Pharisees that were listening to the story. Because the Midrash had a whole list, a whole long reason why a nobleman wouldn't run. A nobleman, noblemen don't run. They don't I got a feeling when the, that father saw his his son coming, he cut a jig. Now, in the first service, I cut a jig. I'm not going to do it in this service. I just I, I think there was a dance of joy when the father saw his son. He hiked up his robe and he ran to meet him. Reckless. You see, nobleman of his day didn't run, but there was something in his heart that overruled his respectability. He ran and he fell on his son and he kissed him. And that word, you know, I can see, you know how the Middle Eastern kiss is on both cheeks? That's not this word. This word is that he kissed him and he kissed him and he kissed him. He slobbered all over him. You know, mothers, what I'm talking about. You grab that face and you kiss all over it. I've been there. I've been one of them, been slobbered on. And I'll be honest with you, I miss that. When I get to heaven, I'm going to first see Jesus, and then I'm going to let her slobber all over me. You understand what I'm saying here. He was exorbitant. His love was manifest. 
It wasn't something... You see, here's why this is so strange and so reckless. Because the Pharisees would have said this. If the Father had seen the Son coming, what He should have done for respectability and for community and for the Son's benefit, He should have gone into His house and locked the door and made the Son wait four days before he could approach the Father. And after four days, he could come in and he could bow low at his Father's feet and kiss his Father's feet and be willing to take whatever punishment and whatever the Father said to him for restoration. That's what should have taken place. Now think of what Jesus is describing. This father hiking up his robe and running and falling on his son and kissing and kissing and kissing him out there before he ever reached the community. He went out there. He found him on the outskirts because had he got to the community, you see, they had already had his funeral. He wasn't welcome. He had dishonored. He had rebelled. He was dead to them. Probably the elder brother was in charge of the funeral. His father falls on him. And the boy begins to recite his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven to the heavens and in your sight of them no longer worthy to be called your son. But you see, he doesn't even get to finish his rehearsed speech. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring the best, of, bring out the best of robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and a sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us be eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. The father doesn't respond to the son. Did you see that? The son saying, Father, forgive me, I've never, I'll no longer be worthy. And the father doesn't even respond to him. He turns to his servants and says, Quick, go get the best robe. Anybody, do you really, do you understand who would have had the best robe in the family? It was the father. And the thing that I didn't understand is that this robe was a, was a robe that was worn to show honor and dignity of the family. The thing I didn't understand that this robe might have just not been made for his father, but it might have been passed down from the father to the father to the father, and now he's passing it to the youngest son? He's lavishing in reckless abandon the dignity of the family back on a wayward son. Get the ring. It's a signet ring. The ring that carried the authority of the family. It's where any kind of authority, any kind of word that was going out from the family, they'd put a wax seal there and that the ring was used to signify that it, it had the authority of accuracy. He was given back the authority to speak on behalf of the Father. Now just, I don't know about you, but what if he does the wrong thing again? Who's to say he's not lying to you, Dad? Go get the shoes. You see, slaves and workmen, hired servants and those people, they didn't wear shoes. Shoes spoke of people who had responsibility. He was giving back dignity and authority 
and responsibility. Everything that he had given up, he was given back. Full sonship. Yeah, but what about, well, that's not right. There's nobody like that. There's no father like that. Or is there? Kill the fatted calf. I've been studying this chapter and I found out the fatted calf was something that had been reserved. Majority of the time, the fatted calf was used at the eldest son's wedding. A fatted calf. They didn't eat meat like what we eat meat. Well, some of us don't eat meat. Some of you don't eat meat. I like meat. At the price of meat, some of us don't eat meat. <laughs> the whole point being, they killed the fatted calf. The fatted calf would have fed a hundred to two hundred people. This wasn't about a celebration in the family. This was a celebration in the community. It was a. It was the fatted calf was used for the highest honor. And here's the thing. He wasn't killing the fatted calf for the son. He was killing the fatted calf for the father to celebrate with the community. They're going to have a party. And the father's throwing it. When you think about heaven, do you think about God throwing a party? Or do you think about everybody's got to bow down? No, I got a feeling that God is the head of the party. Because he keeps telling us, Jesus, Jesus is making him known. If you've seen Jesus, uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I got an idea that Jesus is telling them the height of the celebration in heaven is when a, a sinner repents, comes back to the Father. And they will celebrate and honor the glory of the Father for his grace and his forgiveness. Money had been more important than the father to the son, but he found out that he was more important to the father than money. So let me let me ask you a couple of questions. When do you think the father loved his son the most? When he was rebelling and he was about to let him go? When he divided his estate? Do you think that's when he, he loved him enough to let him go? Or do you think maybe it was when he saw him coming home and he saw him on the road? Do you think the father, the, the compassion that welled up, do you think that's when he loved him the most is when he saw him coming back? Or do you think they loved him the most when he killed the fatted calf and they had the celebration? When do you think the father loved him the most? The truth is, the father hadn't changed one bit. From the time he left to the time he came home to the time of the celebration. You see, the truth is the Father's love doesn't change. From every point, every point of the story where the Father, he, he loved the Son more than, there's not any other point. He loves completely through the whole process. It's the constant in the story. Isn't it amazing how at each point in the story, this father acts completely opposite of how we would expect a loving father to act. First of all, I'm sitting there thinking, you don't enable rebellion. Get in his face. Confront. 
<laughs> this father lets him go and gives him the estate. Did he know what he was going to do? Well, we know God knew, but that father may not have known in the story. He, knew, he may not have known the length it would go, but here's the point. The father knew his love for the son was sufficient for wherever he went. It's so opposite of us, we wouldn't let them get by with it. It's so opposite from us. And what that says to me is, perhaps I don't know the Father's love the way I ought to. Because let me tell you, I think, well, I want to be like God. I want to be like the Father. I want to love, I want to love people the way God loves them. And all of a sudden, it comes back in my face. I don't have an inkling of that kind of love. How do you treat people who've done you wrong? When they've talked bad about you and it is totally wrong. When they've run you down and they've uh, manipulated you and cut your feet out from below you. That everything, they've treated you, they've robbed you, they've, you know, well, I'm just going to love them. No. I don't know about you, but I'm going to talk bad about them. I'm going to put them in their place. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to defend my reputation. Keep it from to keep from losing. And you see, here's something that I realized. Your behavior is not near as important to God as your heart. You see, the father wasn't about improving the boy's behavior. It was about getting the boy back into his heart and getting the father into the boy's heart. Let's just be honest. Most of the time, our repentance is to get God to make it better for us. Instead of to get God and everything be better for us. Everything the Son was looking for was in the heart of the Father. Safety, the future, the fullness, it was all to the Father. And the son couldn't get that because he couldn't get the father. And he thought the father was demanding and exacting. And he thought that he was going to go back and be a hired servant. You know what that meant? He was he going to go back and work until he paid everything back. How many of you know you can't work long enough to pay everything back you owe him? His actions make no sense at all until less he wanted something more than his son's mere responsible behavior. Let me tell you something, folks. And this is, this is going to be weird coming from a preacher. It's not about how you act. It's about who you love. We've made all... Well, let me tell you. We've put on the world what God's not putting on them. What He wants is their heart. And I've, I've discovered something in my own life. When he gets my heart, he changes my behavior. I find out I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to jump through the hoops. It really, I know, I'm not there yet, but it really doesn't matter what you think. It matters what he thinks. Because he's the one that loves me. Gave himself for me. Let me ask you one other question we'll be done. Who do you identify with in the story? 
You see, we all take sides. When you're hearing a story, you take sides. Who do you line up with? Well, the poor boy. You know, he just got himself into a mess. He didn't mean, you know, he made some mistakes up front. No, he was a rebel. Isn't it amazing how we excuse? Because what we want is we want excuses. You identify with the son. Some of you identify that you know that you thought it was going to be different than what it is. And life is running. You've run into the famines in your life. You've run into this thing that you thought was going to work ain't working. And, and, and what you've done is you realize the devil says to you, there's no way back. There's no way out. You're stuck. You've messed up too much. You've messed up too long. You've messed up too bad. Or do you identify with the Pharisee? They ain't nobody doing this. That's stupid. Let me tell you something. Pride will keep you away from the Father as much as sin will. I ain't doing it. I don't care. Yeah, I know what the Bible says. I don't care. They've pushed me one step too far. Yeah, just stay there. See who the real loser is. Here's the one that most of us don't identify with. That's the Father. A lot of people have prodigals. They've drifted away from family. They've drifted away from family values. They've walked in rebellion. You see what's taken on their life and there doesn't seem to be any way that there's any way out. No love you can love them with that seems to be bringing them back. The one that I don't identify with in this story... I find myself a Pharisee. I know what it is to be the son who's made a mess of it. The one that I have a problem identifying is the very one I need to identify with, and that's the father who doesn't change his love no matter the behavior. The father loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son His Son, to come to love you. To come to die for you. And to live to love you. And to live through you to love others. He said, let's be merry for this Son of mine who was dead is alive again. Who made Him alive? The son's change of mind didn't make him alive. The son's change of, 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 of presence where he was didn't make him alive. The one who made him alive was the father who gave the robe, who gave the ring, who gave... Listen to me. The one who makes you alive is not you turning over a new leaf, but it's the father himself who makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus. Moms, you're here. You know what it is to hurt your heart, to be wounded as you watch. Let me just tell you, there's a safe place for you to get. Just step back into the Father's heart and know that He loves them enough to chase them down. There's no boundary too too high. There's no mountain too that He won't scale. There's no shadow He won't light up. That's that song. There's no lie He won't strike down. 
He has a reckless love for your children. He has a reckless love for you. Some of us are the children. I know what it was in 1972 to get to a place to where I was in a famine in my life. I'd got a scholarship to play basketball and I'd done, I'd done everything. God had called me to preach and I had another destination. I had another desire. And, and all of these things were going on and I was making a mess of my life. I was doing everything I could to get God off of my back. Get my, I didn't care about anybody or anything. I just wanted to do my own thing. And I know what it was for God to chase me down and find me where I was. And He forgave me. And He stood me up and set my feet. And then you'd think, well, well then it was all okay. No, it wasn't. Because I was dumb as a brick. I, I started to get Now that I'm out of it, now I can do what I really want to do. And I'll just put God's name on it. Anybody know that? I'll just make it Christian. And I turned it into a religious performance. And I come to the, light, to the place to where I could no longer perform religiously. I was, I was a failure, failing. Now most of us know that we fail, but have you ever known yourself to be a failure, failing? Preaching every Sunday, but inside, failing in my relationship with Him. And I went out to Florida, and that's where God said, Daryl, if you never do anything, never do it again. I want you to know one thing. I love you. I never loved you for what you did. I loved you because you're mine. That changed everything for me. I no longer had to perform for people. I could rest in the love of my Father for me and live by Him, allowing Him to live through me. Now, don't you know I'm just perfect? I'm just, you know, no. I'm learning daily. Today, here's the thing that God's saying to me. Daryl, you don't have a clue how much I love you. You really don't. And you don't know have a clue how much I love these people. And you don't have a clue how much I love this world. But I want you to come back to me. Come back to me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus to give a revelation of your love today. I'm asking you to recover the heart of the Father in our hearts and in our lives. Father, I just pray you just turn back, just pull back the curtain and let us see of your great love. Father, I'm asking you to touch the lives and the hearts of these people with the touch of your love. Baptize us, immerse us into the love of the Father. Manifest it upon us and let us bask in you. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know, I ask you just to pour out on them and let the love draw them to the Father's heart. Father, there's many of us who find ourselves judging and looking at others. Lord, Father, I pray right now that the love of God would overwhelm us with what He sees and how He is. May the heart of the Father set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information or to listen to past sermons, go to newcovenantlampasses.com.